Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Today is a big day. Uh, BC begins the largest mass vaccination in provincial history, of course, and anyone 85 or older and Indigenous leaders 65 and older who made an appointment to get a COVID-19 vaccine last week will start getting those shots today. For the most part, seniors will be getting the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, but there are some major differences, right, between the four vaccines that Health Canada has approved. Oh, are there? Because we need to talk that through. There are so many rumors flying around right now. We decided that this should be Myth Bustin' Monday, and we're kicking off the Mike Smith show with a good friend of the program, microbiologist with a specialty in studying emerging pathogens like COVID-19. You've likely heard of him before. He's a good friend of the show, as I mentioned. Jason Tetro is with us for this first half hour. Jason, as always, good to chat with you. <laughs> it's great to be with you. Holy rumor mill. It feels like yeah. as the mass vaccinations ramp up, as people are booking their appointment and it's reality, mm-hmm. it's no longer necessarily the frustration of not having the supply. Now it's like, okay, the supply's here. Okay, let's break down which one's not the great one. And you and I have been talking about vaccines since the the first uh news story broke of the development of the of the Pfizer BioNTech and then the sharing of information and the and the explosion of science in in 2020 to get us where we are today can you give us just some perspective on how incredible it is that we even have these vaccines right now well i mean it's not just incredible because of the last year it's incredible because of the last 30 years because many of the platforms that were used for other purposes like curing cancer or dealing with chronic diseases or even dealing with infections have been repurposed to actually develop vaccines and so as a result of that when we had SARS-CoV-2 basically turn into a pandemic we were ready on the research side to be able to put something together. What's amazing, though, is that we did it exactly at the same speed that we do the flu vaccine every single year. That, to me, is the most amazing thing because our regulatory system is in place, our development is in place, and our up, up, uh, essentially upscaling is in place, although there have been a few hiccups because, you know, <laughs> you have to go from 1.3 to 2 billion per uh, per year. You're going to have to shut down for a little bit. But other than that, the blip, it's been really, really cool to watch this happen. And it really does pose um, great optimism, not only for the end of this pandemic, but also that future pandemics down the road will only last months as opposed to, you know, years or decades so, Jason, when we found ourselves in the precarious position one year ago right now, uh, where the um, the World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 pandemic, mm-hmm. there were some experts and scientists who thought this the timeline could be anywhere from 18 months to four years to forever. The vaccines have really changed that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we have to thank Ebola for that. And and I know that sounds really strange, but when Ebola struck in West Africa back in 2014, 2015, 
what ended up happening was people were very concerned that this was never going to go away. And it would mm -hmm. actually end up being the worldwide pandemic that we saw with Dustin Hoffman and outbreak many, many, many moons ago. Um, thankfully, though, we had a vaccine here in Canada that was already made. And so they were able to develop this very, very quickly. And they were able to help control that. And even now, when we have our outbreaks of Ebola, it's getting controlled. And so that essentially was the stencil for what we're going through right now with SARS-CoV-2. It's just that there is that delay of about nine to 10 months, just like the flu vaccine every year that mm. we had to go through. But it was almost like clockwork. In the next segment, we are opening up phones. If you have questions about vaccines, uh, the rollout uh, concerns one way or the other, you want to talk it through with uh, our super awesome science show guy in Jason Tetro, microbiologist with a specialty in studying emerging pathog pathogens like COVID-19. You can line up on our phone line 604-280-9898 or star 9898. We're going to do a full segment of taking calls on this subject. But Jason, I want to get to some of the rumors around the various mm -hmm. vaccine brands here. Can you give me just a yeah. little bit of a, of a general Cole's notes? Cause people have definitely learned the, the brand names of each, but some come with a right. different press than others. This is what you need to know. We have two branches of our immune system that are targeted by vaccines. One is called antibodies, humoral. The other is T cells, cell mediated. Now, what you want to do is you want to have a vaccine that's going to stimulate hopefully both, but it's probably going to focus on one or the other. So when you look at the mRNAs, they tend to really focus on antibodies, which is awesome. And if you look at the adenovirus ones, which are the AstraZeneca and the Janssen, Johnson Johnson, those focus on the T cell, which is awesome. But here's where it gets really interesting. When you turn 50 and as you get older, the cell-mediated or T-cell response starts to go down very, very slowly. I mean, over time, it goes down. But the antibodies, they stick around forever. Like people who basically lived through the Spanish flu still had antibodies against that particular virus. Like that's how amazing antibodies are. So the whole idea is that you want to focus an age group to the type of vaccine that is going to be best for you. That's essentially where we get all of this discussion of age specificity. However, all four vaccines have been tested in all age groups, whether it be in the clinical trials leading up to approval or afterwards, real world data. And it shows that all of them are giving everybody the opportunity to fight off mild to moderate disease and definitely preventing serious and, and onwards. So basically, no matter what age you happen to be, if you are offered a vaccine, well, um, to, to quote Hamlet, get thyself to, to a chair and, and <laughs> roll up that sleeve. We found a little something funny. If you don't follow uh, Brittle Star on Twitter, uh, Stuart Star. Reynolds. Brittle Star. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Here is just a taste of what was posted uh, yesterday on reasons to not get a vaccine. Tongue in cheek. Have a listen. You may not want to get the vaccine for one of many other reasons, such as you're a big chicken and you're scared of needles. You can't get enough of those lockdowns. You have a complete ignorance of medical science for the past 100 plus years. One time your friend had mono and you remembered that you both shared a drink from the same cup the week before and you didn't even get it. So you're kind of invincible. 
This is such a funny take on a very serious subject matter, because if you dive deep enough into the anti-vax world, some of the the sparkly things, some of the randomness, it's like, did you know that there's the Mm -hmm. same stuff in one of those vaccines that they put in hot dogs? It's like, what are you talking about? Really, the (laughs) fear-based reasons to not get a vaccine, Um, you know, Jason, Mm -hmm. with you and I, every single time we've talked, you have said, you know, the best vaccine is the one that's in front of you and being offered to you in this moment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think if you were to like create a list of the the, the rumors or, or conspiracy theories, I think my favorite is still that mRNA is going to change your genetic material. And the yes. reason is, is that if you did gra- grade nine biology, you know that our cells have a nucleus and inside the nucleus is our DNA. And mRNA is actually on the outside of the nucleus. Now, mRNA is produced inside and pushed out. That's how it works. But it's not you don't have mRNA going inside the nucleus. That's why we use mRNA in the first place. And as a result of that, there's absolutely no chance that you can have any of this. But the thing is, is that when you get into a conspiracy theory and you start hearing all these things, if you don't do your reading or ask a grade nine student, then you are essentially going to fall for it. Yeah, because there is fear here. This is this is scary times, but there's nothing scarier than the idea of becoming ill, severely ill, hospitalized, or even dying of COVID-19. And that's not fear-mongering. That's the pandemic we're living in. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. And uh, we wonder, do you have any questions about how vaccines work? If you need to be uh, getting your shot, which you do, and you want to know which one works best, uh, now's your opportunity to speak with a scientist, Jason Tetro, microbiologist with a specialty in studying emerging pathogens like COVID-19. He's the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, as well as with us to take your calls. 604-280-9898, star 9898 is a free call on your cell. And Jason, we've got a full phone board, so let's get straight to it here. Uh, Joseph in White Rock, you're up first. Welcome to the show, Joseph. Well, thank you. And I enjoy hearing from Jason all the time. What a wonderful guest. Listen, Jason, just before Christmas in 2020, I experienced a brain stroke, not a fun event. I'm not adverse at all to the vaccines. I want one. Uh, But I am a tad nervous about AstraZeneca and what I've heard about the occasional uh, incident of um, blood clotting. Uh, someone with a brain injury does not want to hear about clotting. Mm-hmm. And I've, I, I respect Isaac Bogosh immensely, and I've heard his 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 rebuttal. I'd like to hear yours. Why should I not be afraid of AstraZeneca? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, first off, when you say occasional, it's like getting tickets to the Super Bowl. In other words, it probably never is going to happen. But anyway, um, when it comes to a vaccine, whether it be a flu vaccine or a COVID vaccine or any kind of vaccine that involves a live virus, um, whether it be an adenovirus, influenza, whatever, uh, there's always a risk that there's going to be um, an increase in the immune response. And what we've learned over many, many years is that if that immune response gets too high, it can lead to the development of little tiny blood clots. Uh, We're seeing this more and more in COVID-19 just as an infection. But for vaccines, this has always been something to be looking out for. And whenever you're in development of a vaccine, it's one of the primary things you want to try and look for. Uh, It has not been seen in any of the clinical trials. And so what's happening is we're having an overlap. Essentially, these individuals have 
either inflammatory conditions or other types of chronic conditions that are leading to a greater chance for uh, clotting. And as a result of that, they're probably getting the vaccine just completely separately, but we're seeing this um, you know, same timing. But there's no correlation in that sense. There's no causality, if you will. And also, if you happen to have had a stroke or, or even a heart attack, there's a very good likelihood you're already on anticoagulants, whether they be antiplatelets or anticoags, and that may also help. So in that sense, I think the AstraZeneca is going to be fine for you. But again, you want to make sure that you're having a discussion with your doctor, a healthcare provider, just simply because it's better for them to know where you are feeling and, and to have that conversation with them. Good one. Okay, so let's keep rolling here on the phone line, 604-280-9898, star 9898. Your questions for Jason Tetro, Peggy in Coquitlam. Welcome to the show. Hello. I am, am uh, 86-year-old, and I had a very, very bad reaction in 1967 to flu vaccine, and they mm-hmm. think it was from thimerosal, the pres- preservative that is my concern about getting another vaccine. I have never had another flu vaccine since then. Mm-hmm. Well, first off, thimerosal is not used in uh, any of the vaccines that are used uh, for COVID-19. That's the first thing. Uh, secondly, even in all the other vaccines that are out there, thimerosal is not being used. So I don't think you really need to be concerned about that. But at 86 years old, I mean, you have lived already. So the reality is you want to be protected against the things that are going to really affect you at this moment. And so that's one of the reasons why the COVID-19 vaccine is definitely for you. Um, and also, you know, getting a flu shot, depending on what year it might be and that type of thing may also be something you'd be interested in. But don't worry about thimerosal anymore. And by the way, 1967, it wasn't the thimerosal. But I mean, email me. We can talk about more of that later. Does that answer your question, Peggy? Things now. And that was just a hazard of a guess. And I was told not to uh, not to try anything since, which I haven't. And that's that's my concern. Is there a derivative or a similar no. substance. No, no there is s- not. You can you can feel confident in what Jason tells you. Yeah, ever since the Searle incident in 1976, the way that we develop vaccines has changed completely. And again, if you want to know more information, just find me on Twitter at JATetro. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's keep rolling down the phone lines here. 604-280-9898. Marshall in Surrey, you're up next. Welcome. Thank you, Jason, for your expertise. Uh, I'm anaphylactic. And um, I, w- I have concerns if uh, taking a vaccine might uh, cause me problems. Yeah, that is also something that we've been looking at more or less since the actual approval, because we didn't see very much anaphylaxis in uh, the, the clinical trials. And these reactions that we've been hearing about are called anaphylactoid. So they're not exactly the same as an allergy. So the reality is... Um, you want to make sure that if when you are called for the vaccine, you want to let them know that this is something that you have experienced in the past. And if you do have a list of allergens that you know are you are allergic to, uh, to provide those. So for me, uh, you know, I'm allergic to certain antibiotics and pistachios and that. So I always make sure that my healthcare providers know that. And so I'll be making sure that I let them know when it's my turn to roll up my sleeve. So I, I hope that helps. All right. Welcome back. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. Very pleased to welcome our next guest to the program. He is BC's health minister, Adrian Dix. Welcome back to the program, Minister Dix. Hey, great to be on the show, Jody. 
I have so much I want to cover off with you. Okay. I want to get into let's, spring let's break because here we exactly let's roll because we got spring break rolling on here. But I want to note how different, uh, how much can change in the matter of a week. A week ago, things were frustrating for so many British Columbians, but because the processing of appointments has gone so well in the health authority call centers, uh, now things are being uh, sped up. This is, uh, it's exciting on so many levels, and yet there are so many people wanting to understand exactly where we are as of today, March 15th. Can you lay us out uh, what today is and and how things are going to work into tomorrow with, with the age groups? So, so far, um, we booked about 100,000 appointments as of the time we're speaking uh, right. across BC that are these age-based appointments, right? And so today, we're opening up to the broader group below 85, and today we're going to do it one year at a time this week, so it works well for everyone. So everyone has a chance who's in the category to get uh, their appointment booked without too much difficulty. So today, it's going to be people 84+. plus. So born 1937 or earlier, then tomorrow 83 and over, then 1938, and then 82 on Wednesday, 81 on Thursday, and 80 on Friday. So by the end of Friday, everyone 80 and above will have had the opportunity to book their appointments uh, at the same time. And that's because there are about 120,000 people uh, uh, in this category between 80 mm-hmm. and 84, 100,000 uh, people who haven't been immunized, right? There's 118,000 in total, about 14,000, 15,000 of those have been immunized. So we're talking about 21,000 new appointments potentially a day. And that's what we're doing this week. We've been able to advance it and move it up, and all of that is good news. One of the challenges, um, Judy, for our teams is that we get vaccines somewhat inconsistently. Right? Right. It's coming in yeah. more and more now. For example, the next two weeks, we're going to get more vaccine than three weeks from now. And so we have to plan for all that because what's really important with these large immunization clinics where we've booked 50,000 separate appointments, it may be possible if you're going into a workplace or at a particular care home, say, if the vaccine doesn't come in to delay it for a couple of days, but it's going to be very difficult to delay that so that it requires a lot of preparation. And our folks are doing that. And this morning, um, I hear from around the province that uh, the Immunization clinics are often running the age-based ones, and uh, we're hopeful that will go very well for people. So this week, today, at noon, if you're 84, uh, you can call in and book your appointment. Tomorrow, at noon, you can start booking your appointment if you're 83. So are we continuing that next week as well? Will it be 79 next Monday and 78 next Tuesday? We're going to see where we are. Um, The 75 to 79 group. I'm a bit pushy. No, no. The 75 to 79 group is even bigger. There are about yeah. 181,000 people in that category. Um, but uh, I think you can expect us to continue to do that. And soon we'll also have a full online platform, not just in Fraser Health, but everywhere in the province, uh, which will assist in all this as well as our call centers. But uh, the good news from our perspective, the really good news in all of this, is the real interest of people in getting vaccinated, yeah, that true. people want to want to get vaccinated. And the enthusiasm for that, even though there were problems last Monday and, and that have been much discussed, uh, I think the enthusiasm is a good thing for everybody because every time someone else gets vaccinated, it makes all of us safer. It does. Online booking, you mentioned right there, you expect that to go live when? Uh, soon. We had originally scheduled it uh, for April. Yeah. And we're obviously looking at that. But the, the key now, and I think as the call centers are working 
uh, effectively. And I think this approach of going one year at a time will make it even more effective as we go through a week. So not doing 80 to 84 all at once, but doing it one year at a time, one age age year at a time, will uh, will keep us going and allow us to book the appointments we need to get booked. And then the important thing is people get immunized, and that's um, that's, that's what's happening out there. Yes. And for all the problems last Monday, no one's appointment, no one's vaccination appointment was delayed at all by those problems. And and now we've got to get on to vaccinating people. And it is the first day of spring break and the first day of general vaccinations, as you mentioned. Uh, this weekend, our first uh, where we've been allowed to meet outdoors in that group of 10. And uh, talking about how BC residents have been behaving this spring break or, or will be behaving is, is, is big and wanting to keep our numbers down as we are in this hopeful last leg of COVID-19. There's a little bit of confusion surrounding what we should and should not do over spring break. I've got a couple of clips from Dr. Henry that I want to play for you. And then I want to hear your thoughts so you can just clarify, because you know, those mixed messaging pieces frustrate folks uh, immensely. So here's Dr. Henry about not traveling out of our health region. There are areas where we have a lot of transmission happening. And we do not want people to travel from those areas to an area of low risk. And we don't want people to visit an area that is high risk right now. So that was uh, in the same press conference as this, where Dr. Henry uh, spoke to going to your cabin. Over March break, if you are a family and you're going to your your cabin um, and you're self-contained, that that's okay. But we really need to stick to our household, stick to our um, uh, limited travel. So could you clarify for those who might find that to be a mixed message, what the intent is there? Uh, point one, stick to your household. So that means right now, and we did have more than 600 cases on Friday. We had, and we'll be announcing today, and a significant number of cases over the weekend at our 3 o'clock press conference. So that means that indoor gathering still doesn't work at all, right? And that means only gather inside with members of your household. And that was the point, especially Dr. Henry was making with that second question, which is, if you're going anywhere, stick with your household. Equally, we want people to go outside. And uh, this was a theme in the early part of the pandemic, March and April and May, remember, outside is better than inside. And there was a problem then, as you'll recall, Jody, a lot of people saw people outside and got upset about that. But the place where COVID was being transmitted especially was inside. So what we wanted to, what I think Dr. Henry was saying on Thursday was, um, it is it is possible to go outside more with your trusted 10. One, two, Let's not travel to spring break. Let's yeah. not, let's not uh, you know, it continues to be a problematic time. There are more than 300 cases in Fraser Health. In January, there are a lot of cases in interior and northern health. There are, there are fewer now in interior health, but a lot in northern health. So let's, uh, this spring break, get outside in our own communities. And that's really the core of the message, right? And that's what we're, that's what we're I think that's what Dr. Henry was trying to communicate and was communicating on Thursday. That, you know, spring is here. It's a beautiful day where I am right now in Victoria. It was a beautiful day in Vancouver, I believe, where you are. And so we want people to get outside because to keep your children cooped inside during spring break would have been, wouldn't have worked for anybody. But um, the other rules apply.
And you bring up children, and that was the emotional moment in that press conference. Uh, we don't often see Dr. Henry overwhelmed to the degree where she's, you know, struck speechless for a moment. It, it certainly is something that made me stop in my tracks in speaking about young people and, and wanting to uh, ensure that, that the young people in our lives have those connections and that getting outside piece is part of that. Is that what we're hearing? Yes, I think so. I think, and just, uh, just being outside in spring is an inherently healthy thing. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be wearing masks and doing all of the things and the safe physical distancing and limiting it to a very strict uh, group of people you'd be gathering with. But I think that it's important that children have that opportunity uh, and that this is not a repetition of March of uh, 2020 and April of 2020 when we really were stuck inside uh, and because of what we knew then. And so I think uh, I think this is this is a good thing and a healthy thing. We all I think are affected by the pandemic in sort of broad social ways, and then in personal ways, right? And it affects all of us differently. And uh, I, I think there's a tendency sometimes um, to be very quick to judge, and uh, all of us are affected by these decisions. I know uh, Dr. Henry at a personal level. Uh, we, we all know people who are being affected in this time in this pandemic a great deal. It's not just the statistics. The statistics are real. And we, um, Dr. Henry uh, is very assiduous at staying in touch with people, as am I. That's part of my job. And uh, so we hear those stories personally. And just in the last few weeks, I've talked to lots of people who've told me that they've had memorial services for ones they've loved. I mean, this is a regular theme, and we've only had nine people at them, and boy, that was difficult. And uh, we hear we hear that, but right now we got to stay safe. We do, and just to put a, a, a poignant end to the confusion piece is that traveling to your cabin with your family bubble only is that caveat here. This is not a time to do the safe 10 of the people that you have been missing and meeting at your family cabin. That's right. I mean, indoors, together, indoors is only for your household. And, you know, it bears repeating, together, indoors is only for your household. And these are the very challenging situations about the way we gather because a lot of the places that we gather that are important to us in my own life, um, the importance of uh, of, um, of of church in my own life, my, yeah. the importance of cultural events in my own life. Uh, my wife is a writer. All of those things are incredibly important, but we can't do those things. We can't gather in that way right now, and we're working to find ways and working together with groups to find ways to be able to do that in the period to come. But that's just on the horizon. But right now, this moment is a super dangerous moment for people. We have a lot of cases of COVID-19. It's no less dangerous than it ever was, it's ever been during the pandemic. And so we want to keep people safe in this period when we're rolling out the, the vaccine that we have. Let's keep doing the things that have been working to save British Columbians as we get everyone the vaccine as the mass vo- rollout uh, begins in earnest today. Health Minister Adrian Dix, thank you, as always, for taking some time out for us. Hey, take care. Anytime. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. You know, we've covered a lot of topics over the course of the show thus far as we step into spring break. We've been talking about the mass vaccination rollouts. We've talked about the various vaccines that are available, uh, vaccine passports, travel 
as we head toward the end of COVID-19, a very COVID-heavy uh, couple of hours for sure. If you have any comments on any of those uh, topics, please feel free to call our buzz lines. The phones have been just rocking today. I love that you're all tuned in and taking part. So remember, the buzz lines are always available to you. 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. If you didn't get through with a, with a comment, please do know that our producer, Sarah Hyde, is all over those buzz lines. Uh, if you have something you'd like to say, we'll play them later on in the show. 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. Bit of a pivot here. First day of spring break, as I mentioned, uh, for those who have kids anyway, uh, taking a, a little break and getting outside, you know, we're allowed to have our trusted 10 that we we can connect with outdoors, keep it moving, keep it distanced. If you don't keep it distanced, keep it masked. But so many of us, I mean, how many po COVID puppies have you seen? So many people have found that this last year has been the perfect time to get a pet. And we're all hitting the trails together. I've got a couple dogs. I'm out every single day dog walking. Uh, see the dog walking community out there. And, and a member of the dog walking community is actually a good friend of mine with a, a last name that might be recognizable to regular listeners here on CKNW uh, in Kathy Tostenson. Kathy today, though, is uh, representing as a pet owner, a concerned pet owner. I would like to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here, Kathy. Thank you, Jody, for having me. And joining you is uh, Dr. Alistair Westcott, who's the medical director at Mountainside 24-Hour mm -hmm. Emergency Animal Hospital. And the reason why we've gathered here today is the astounding spike in dogs being poisoned by THC, finding that roach or discarded used joint uh, that is ingested by a dog and what happens. So uh, Dr. Westcott, I'd like to welcome you as well. I didn't even get to give you an opportunity to say hello. I'm so into this subject. Thank you for taking some time out today. Uh, good morning, Jody, and good morning, Kathy. Thanks for having me. Let's start with you, Kathy, and your experience uh, with Wilson, and actually uh, numerous experiences now uh, living on the North Shore and, and going through the trails or through parks there and THC poisoning impacting your family. Absolutely. Well, anybody that knows us know that we love golden retrievers, and we have two. We have Wilson, who was five, and Mia, who was two, and they are a major part of our family. And for anyone that has a golden retriever, they absolutely know how much they love their food and their snacks. And if they don't come when you're offering one, you just know something isn't right. And that was absolutely the case with Wilson. So two weeks ago, after coming home from a walk in our neighborhood in Lynn Valley, I, you know, Wilson began exhibiting symptoms that I had sadly seen one year earlier with our 12-month-old retriever, Mia. So Wilson was sitting on our couch, and yep, sends our dog sleep on our couch. Um, when I called him over for a snack, and I immediately noticed that his head was swaying, he was disoriented, he was twitching, and he fell off. Or when he got off the couch, he fell. He could barely walk, and he jumped when I pet him, and with any loud noise, he jumped. And I knew right away that he had ingested cannabis. So we quickly called Mountainside, and they were waiting for myself and our son, Ryan. And Ryan t basically had to carry Wilson in because he could not walk. He was just absolutely out of it. And I can't say enough about the, the, the team at Mountainside. They were just so caring. They were excellent. And we ended up waiting three hours in our car because we couldn't go in, of course, with COVID uh, while they did the diagnosis. And a urine sample was taken and then a rapid response drug test was administered where it was determined that Wilson was suffering, sadly, from cannabis toxicity. And he was given activated charcoal 
and thankfully didn't need to stay overnight. But, you know, once we got him home and he was safe, you know, it took him a full 18 hours to recover. I posted a picture of him on Facebook and Instagram, and I had one of my friends actually comment and call me to say that he had looked like he'd had a stroke. Half of his face was all, um, it just, it was like it just out of balance. And then the comments of concern and anger and compassion immediately started being posted with friends indicating that they had also experienced or knew of someone that had had a similar situation. And, and in fact, one of my friends said I was the sixth person in the past couple of weeks that hadn't heard about this. And the next day, Jody, you called me after I posted a nice picture of Wilson, who was back to quote unquote normal. And Jody called me and said, you know, how's Wilson doing? And at that, at that time, when we both realized that we needed to take this on and build and create awareness of this very, very serious issue that is happening. So that was, that's my story. This is the motivation here is the awareness of, I mean, people, it's legal. People are going to smoke uh, pot. They are going to uh, partake outdoors, uh, being safe and social and what have you. But uh, Dr. Westcott, can you give us an idea of the increase perhaps in instances of THC poisoning in dogs? Directly with the legalization of the, of the uh, recreational use of marijuana. Um, we've noticed about 15 to 20 cases a month that come through here on average. Um, it's quite recognizable to us now. We, we can sort of tell um, that they have this from the moment they, they come in based on certain characteristic signs. The difficulty with um, this, I, I don't, when, when we use the word poisoning, I think it's, it, it implies some sort of intent. I think it's just people aren't aware of uh how this can affect animals they're they're they have receptors for cannabis just like we do but they have proportionally much greater number of them so they can be affected a lot more dramatically than we are even with the smallest amount the end of a of a roach um, a small edible can do crazy things to a dog and each dog is affected differently and there's no minimum dose so while one dog can take quite a large amount with no real repercussions, uh, the same dose in another dog might cause them to go, well, render them unconscious and have a difficulty breathing. So we approach each case differently and separately. And I think mostly it's just a lack of awareness. People just toss the things to one side or they drop it out of a bag of edibles um, or they don't store the medication or their, their, their recreational drugs you know, in a safe place in the house, um, parties, which we're not supposed to have right now, but little tiny social gatherings when the marijuana is involved, people aren't quite as careful as they would be normally. And they don't really notice their dog has gotten into it. So I appreciate the correction on the poisoning because the intent is certainly not, I think, uh, part of it here, but it it is just a lack of awareness of the impacts that this toxic substance can do to our pets. Now, when, when somebody like myself, maybe taking my two small dogs out for a walk and one of them Mm -hmm. starts acting odd, how urgent is it that I get uh, my pet to a vet? Um, You know, if it's later in the evening or what have you, can I wait till morning or is it, no, you got to go right now? No, because we just don't know how much they've ingested and we don't know how it's going to affect them. So there's nothing, you don't have to panic, but um, one should make a call and come in. And worst case scenario, we overdo it. 
you know, we, we, and also there are other conditions that mimic um, pot ingestion, and it's so easy to, to confuse them. Right. The other thing we're noticing, too, is, is unfortunately, many times when we do that urine test, which is not 100% reliable for THC, we catch a number of other drugs in there as well. Um, uh, cocaine, methamphetamines, we see that quite a bit in conjunction with THC. So we're never quite sure what they've eaten off that trail. And, um, and, and so we're more than happy. We, we, we prefer to come in heavy, as we call it, do the diagnosis, get them stabilized, assess them, and if necessary, put them on intravenous fluids and monitor respiration and breath just so we're safe, you know. Um, and uh, in those cases, we've always been very happy we've done that. And most cases of just THC ingestion are, is relatively innocuous. They, they will clear it from their system. They will be disorientated. They will be acting abnormally. It's probably fairly uncomfortable and disorientating for them. And it's nice to have them in a safe place where they can be monitored safely and, and, and that sort of thing. So yes. when you are suspicious that something is not right with your dog, and they're especially neurologically staggering, trembling, acting erratically, um, then just give us a call. We're, we're more than happy to answer questions on the phone. And in most cases, we'll encourage you to come in. Jody Vance in for Mike today. He'll be back tomorrow. Uh, we're continuing our chat about animals and specifically dogs ingesting cannabis, the accidental toxicity that happens uh, when your dog maybe finds that uh, randomly dropped edible or roach that had been tossed aside by somebody who had smoked a joint, maybe at a park. Uh, we need to raise awareness about disposing of things like the end of a joint called a roach um, and, and how dangerous these can be for our dogs. How to identify um, a dog who maybe is under the influence of THC and what needs to happen there. So the phone lines are open if you've got a question on this or if this has happened to you, 604-280-9898, star 9898 is a free call on your cell phone. We're with Dr. Alistair Westcott, who is the medical director at Mountainside 24-Hour Emergency Animal Hospital and Kathy Tostenson, who's a pet owner who just went through this not once but twice over the last year. Uh, and on the line now, we'll welcome Tara from North Van to to the program. Tara, welcome. Thanks for calling. Thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, the topic and uh, your guests, their experience and what they've been through. My family are new first-time dog owners. It took us years to make the commitment. It was my teenage daughters who financially committed committed their time and energy to this project, and we are thrilled. Our six-month-old uh, rescue from Korea uh, ingested THC from a dedicated dog off-leash park in North Vancouver. We were completely naive to the reality of this um, situation. Our dog came home uh, within an hour and was convulsing, uh, lethargic, all the symptoms <clears throat> that your two guests have described. And we were really up emotionally upset, angry and sad. It's uh, ironic that we ended up at Mountainside, a uh, fantastic facility. You know, we were a little bit in shock as rookies through this. Um, but what saddened me and why I called Jody is because the staff there told us that 
our puppy was one of six others in the facility also suffering from the same reality. You know, you mentioned intent. This this is what uh, we need to do is really have society be aware of what they're doing. You know, this was a a dedicated dog walking park. Somebody had to know what they were doing. And visiting since to this park, you know, we've seen suspicious people walking through smoking. And whether it's a cigarette or marijuana is neither here nor there to me. But their intent to drop their their butts on the ground, you know, you don't see new parents dropping dirty diapers on the ground. You don't see people leaving bags of garbage on the street. People have to be accountable for their actions and use much more common sense than they are. Thank you. I appreciate I appreciate your call, Tara. Thank you so much. And and Dr. Westcott, certainly kudos to your your team at Mountainside Twenty Four Hour Emergency Animal Hospital. And Kathy, this speaks. You can hear it in Tara's voice. This speaks to precisely know, what you exactly and I are talking what about. She's yeah. Going through exactly, and we actually we need signage. We need signage in parks. We need it in the beaches, trails to let people know to you know to take it with them. And the signage, you know, we can't be preachy with it. You know, it needs to be interesting. It needs to be engaging. You know, you and I talked yesterday about the signage, you know, dude chilling park or clean up afterwards on the North Shore trails. But, you know, we need to be having that message out there. What what could we say, Doctor Westcott, that would resonate with with people um, with regard to the impacts on on dogs? I think most people um, are are very cognizant of, of, of pets. Everyone loves pets from yeah. from all walks of society. There's very few that don't, especially dogs. Um, and I think they just people just aren't aware of the the impact that this might have on them. It's not cute. Um, no. they, they, they are very upset, the animals, when they come in and very disorientated. And some of them, as I said, said, said you know, go further down that trail in the hospital and get quite, quite ill. Um, and I think if people realize that that casual toss to one side, uh, uh, if they realize what effect it may have, um, they would maybe think twice. Um, just uh, you know what I would, think? You, you, you know. maybe just nailed it there. Honestly, mm-hmm. doctor, like your, your yeah. cast aside could really hurt Fido. You know, think twice yeah. before you toss. I appreciate your time today. And I also appreciate very it. much appreciate a shout out to all of the veterinarians who are essential service workers who have been there for us all through COVID-19, been there for our pets in their times of stress. And Kathy, as always, uh, grateful to communicate and, and be on the same team with you as we will get awesome. this done. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks, Jody. Really, really appreciate it. Welcome back to the show. Okay, chances are that you drive a car and also live in a home. But what if these two things were one and the same? Our show contributor, John Jang, takes us into the growing world of van living and why it's so appealing to young adults. Hey, good morning, Jody. Over the past weekend, while scrolling through Facebook and Instagram, I came across five different targeted ads that were specifically selling me on one thing, van living. Take a listen to one such example that I came across. Ready to live that van life? support a great cause, we're offering you the chance to win a Mercedes 4x4 Sprinter van, plus custom outfitting. Now, this is one of my favorite things in here, the kitchen. You got a gas stove, running water, even a spacious Dometic fridge. 
Basically, it's everything you need to cook a delicious meal after a day of adventure. And thanks to some clever design choices, it's easy to transform this space into a comfortable dining area. Just swivel the chair, swivel the table, and you're ready to enjoy a freshly cooked meal just like you would at home. Assuming you can take your home to the Grand Canyon. This is not some backyard video shot on a cheap camcorder. This ad is professionally made, and the person talking in the video is actually a social media influencer. I'm telling you, this is a strategy designed to target young adults who may be interested in what I would call an alternative lifestyle. And it's a growing trend, especially here in British Columbia, where the housing market and the rental market remains extra competitive. But what is van life actually like? Well, let's find out with our guest, Maxime Rico, who's been living in a van for the past two years. Maxime, what made you decide that van living was right for you? Yeah, well, um, I've been due to my work, I travel quite a bit throughout Canada, and um, it's quite inconvenient to have rents in different parts every six months. So the choice of living in a van seems super appropriate. And yeah, really cool lifestyle, permits me to move everywhere, camp everywhere go skiing when I want to, kayaking. Yeah, it's cheap on rent. Now I'm curious, where are you currently situated at the moment? Yeah, so my winter base is Sun Peaks, um, right next to Kamloops on the ski patroller down there. And, um, and I move up to the north of the Yukon for the summers. All right, so every six months you're driving across the province anyway for work. So I guess you realized living in a mobile home sort of provides some advantages here for you. No, yeah, there's, I find there's so many perks. It's like you live in a rolling tents like your vehicle or your house and vice versa and it permits you to move everywhere and enjoy every place at home and would you say that this is a growing trend in the sense that you probably know a few people who also live in a sprinter van and have totally embraced this lifestyle especially over the past couple of years absolutely i think there's quite a big line between um what i would call weekend warriors like people who get vans and spend the weekends up like to camp and enjoy and people who are actually even there full-time I do think that social media has created a massive trend in that with all Instagram and this beautiful van life posts that we see all the time. Yeah, I saw plenty of those over the weekend, so I understand exactly what you're talking about. Uh, Maxime, what are some of the challenges for you on a daily basis? I'm sure it's not always easy to live this way. Yeah, well, no, definitely not. Um, like, especially right now with this whole COVID situation, uh, amenities are a bit trickier to access. Like, showers are always a hard thing to cope and um yeah general water access or camping or parking spots are a bit trickier but it's still super easy with all the trucking networks and all that you can cope showers and water and make it work for the locations that you choose to park the van at overnight i suspect that sometimes you are finding yourself in residential areas in that scenario have you had experiences where somebody in the neighborhood might come by and ask what you're doing, who you are, asking you to leave, perhaps? Absolutely. I think I'm lucky enough that I have a pretty slick van. I live in a black Sprinter van, which does pass off as a whatever electrician car whatsoever, so I do not get bothered that much, but it does happen for sure. Like the other day, yeah, some neighbor just came up was asking who I was. Um, that being said, there's networks and um, apps you can use um, that are like peer-to-peer um, sharing spots where different van lifers share spots to other ones so it's fairly easy like even when you're in a new city just pop that out of app open see where the people camp and find a spot in a matter of minutes wow i actually didn't know about that so clearly there is a community of individuals like yourself who share that kind of information with each other 
But I'm also not surprised that there is a bit of a pushback on this kind of thing, especially during COVID-19 with people saying that, you know, this can't be fair. I've been forced to stay at home for months and months. And yet somebody like you gets to drive around and park wherever you would like. What would you say to someone who would make those comments? Um, <laughs> I think there's different um, types of people who live in van. Like, as for myself, I kind of tend to spend at least six months and work in a community for quite a while, whereas I'm not actually traveling. Like, it's actually a, like it's a lifestyle. You, you work and you're part of a community and you put your part, just live in a different kind of housing. I think that's a fair point. What you're saying is that you're a contributing member to society. You're working in the community and you're not creating trouble. You just happen to live in a home that has four wheels instead of the prototypical front door. No, totally. I do feel like, like for example, Revelstoke, because I do spend quite a bit of time in Revelstoke. Um, after the quarantine measures in Quebec, there was quite a big influx in um, Quebec played advance that came over. And I totally understand that there could be some kind of outcry or anger from the community um that don't want to see all these people traveling but i think it's important to make the part and see who's who's living there and who's not and finally maxime as you've been living in a van for about two years now i feel like i know the answer here but would you recommend this lifestyle to others who probably haven't tried something like this before oh totally totally like the last two years have been a blast and giving me incredible opportunities and being able to spend time in places that i would have thought sort of impossible like regular living restraints. So yeah, definitely, definitely do it. He is Maxime Rico, currently based out of Kamloops from his Sprinter van home. Appreciate you giving us some time here and providing some insight here today. Well, thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. Oh, John, that's cool. Nomad-ish. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a different lifestyle. Not everyone would probably be able to do something like this. But as Maxime explained, you know, he works uh, temporarily six months at a time in the Yukon and then another six months in the interior. So it gives him some a kind of a need to have a rolling home of sorts. So it seems to be working for him. Did we get how much it costs to live in a van? Well, I, I did a little bit of research, and it seems like a local uh, car company based out of the Lower Mainland, they would be able to retrofit a van for you, but it is not cheap. The overall cost comes close to $100,000, so it's uh, quite the investment. I asked about that uh, with Maxime. He said off the record that he got his van uh, a much, much cheaper, somewhere closer to $5,000, so it'll depend on if you have a friend who's in the business and can sell you a sweet van on the, on a bit of a budget. It's quite something. That peer-to-peer piece is also fascinating as well in terms of how to navigate where you can, you know, park for the night or park for an extended amount of time. Is this, when it comes to what we're living in right now with COVID-19, is this te- technically sort of circumventing public health orders in any way? Yeah, it's a fascinating question because, of course, we've all been told to stay at home, social distance, do all those things, and don't travel if you don't have to, uh, if it's non-essential. However, based on my understanding, Jody, there's no mandate in place for recreational vehicles or mobile homes. So if this is your permanent address, and it happens to be a very fluctuating address, I haven't seen any issue whatsoever from Dr. Bonnie Henry or the provincial government saying that you need to be staying in one place. And as Maxine said, you know, he's working, he's paying taxes as much as he can. Like he's a contributing member to society. Right. I don't know if there is an actual rule in place, though, that would prevent this or say that it's illegal or anything like that. Does the rental market play a role in this? 
Yeah, I would have to imagine it would. I did ask him about that too. And he agreed. Yeah, of course, if you are willing to pay $2,000 a month for, uh, let's say, a one or two bedroom unit in Vancouver, and good luck finding something like that for $2,000 anyways. uh, It's very difficult because you find yourself glued to one spot. And because Maxime is a seasonal worker, you know, I'm not sure that the finances would have worked out where he can afford something like that. So clearly it appeals to different people. 